you will, turn back in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 34. We will not finish there, but we will start there. We've got work to do. We are still in the 10th encampment. For those of you who are carefully following God's story, we are in a lengthy narrative portion of Scripture, which requires you to at least tolerate narratives because the narrative has within it God's will and purpose throughout the events that emerge and show us something of his character, of his attributes, of his purpose and his designs for us. I hope to draw them out a bit more for us today so that we can see them. Exodus 34, we're going to be looking at an aspect of Moses' walk with God that will serve as a model to us. The title of our contemplation today is Arise, Move, and Go, His Shining Face. His Shining Face. My observation last week was that Moses was drawn into what I called a divine matrix. And we define that briefly as a closed loop system for which when one is in it, they are bound by all of the constraints and designs of that system to take you where that system is designed to go. I have argued that there are no accidents in this world. There are no real mistakes. There are no real Uh, faux pas on God's part. Everything in the universe is under his control. This is an intolerable assertion for those who really glorify and magnify the concept of free will because they would imagine that if God is fair to you, he'll let you do whatever you want to do. But the reality is if you and I do whatever we want to do, we're God. And because God is God, everything that you do and everything that I do is predestined according to the will of him that works everything after his own counsel. When we talk about a divine matrix, we are talking about how there is an authority, there is a power, there is a government that frames the behavior of the people that are on the inside of it so that they may or may not know that they are being guided and controlled. Isn't that what governments do? Don't you recognize that somehow there are limitations and parameters and boundaries in your freedoms in America? Certainly you do. You know you can't go anywhere you want to. You know you can't do anything you want to. Even if you could imagine it, you can't act it out. There are only so many things you and I act out in this world, and they are all part of God's predestined purpose for us. Listen to what Romans chapter 8, 28 says. Now, you've heard this before, but this here is what we call the divine matrix. You've heard it before, and we know that what? All things work together for good. How do we know that? Because of a divine matrix. Because God is in control of every event that goes on in our world. We cannot know that if everything is up to happenstance. If it's up to happenstance and chance, you can't know anything. And that's what this secular world would want you to believe. 
It would want you to believe that we are a consequence of accident and casualties and causalities that have no intelligence behind them and that we are aimlessly wandering through the world as a biological phenomena without any predestined intelligence framing our origin, our purpose, or our destiny. But we would know that that is a lie from hell. All things are working together for good to them that what? That is a divine matrix because it's not true for people that don't love him. That's a divine matrix. Notice what that matrix also says to them that are what? Called. You're going to hear that today. That's a divine matrix. The lo- those who love God and those that are called by God can understand everything that goes on in this world is a part of God's plan. Notice what he goes on to say, called according to his purpose. Now, you've seen this before. Verse 29. Here it is. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Salvation is never an accident. It's always intentional on God's part. If you're saved, it's because God chose you and called you and quickened you and brought you into conformity to Christ. That's all there is. Look at the next verse. This is what we call a divine matrix. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also once again what? And whom he called, them he also what? And whom he justified, them he also glorified. We talk about the three pillars of doctrinal reality, being justified by Christ, being sanctified in Christ, and being glorified with Christ. That's the beginning of time and the end of time. We, ladies and gentlemen, are in a divine matrix. So was Moses. So was Moses. And the wonderful and remarkable thing about Moses' experience of the divine matrix is a lesson for you and I. Moses was drawn into this matrix, a system of purpose and calling. And this matrix would change his life. Do you remember it? This is Exodus chapter 3, where Moses is wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And then all of a sudden, he sees a bush burning. That's what we call the beginning of the matrix. And the text tells us when Moses saw the bush burning, he said to himself, let me turn aside and go and see what this marvelous wonder is all about. God had trapped him in his matrix. And from that day to the very point of the text we're dealing with, Moses has been in a matrix. And I must tell you, when God calls you by his grace, you will see an everlasting fire burning in the paradox of a bush. And it will compel you to come and find out what this miracle is all about. And you will discover the grace of God in Jesus And he will take you on a journey that you could never imagine for all your life. Now, it's important for you to get it, child of God, because Moses is our lesson today. And when I use the term his shining face, I am not talking about Moses. I'm talking about the one to whom Moses points. And his name is Jesus. 
And we now need to work through what all this means, because this is the sort of uh, narrative uh, contradiction and narrative paradox of chapter 34, verse 27 through 25. Look at verse 27 and 28, and then we'll begin to work through our points. Exodus 34, 27. Are you there? And the Lord said unto Moses, write thou these words, for after the tenor of these words, have I made a covenant with them, with thee and with Israel. And he was there in the, there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote upon the tables, the words of the covenant, the 10 commandments. Look at verse 29. And it came to pass when Moses had come down from the mountain, Mount Sinai with the two tables of testimony in Moses' hand. When he came down from the mount, that Moses did not know that his face shone while he talked with God. This is so critically important because Moses now is in a state of transformation on a physical level, unbeknownst to himself. And he's about to present himself to the people of God. And this is going to be what I've taught you before, a recapitulation principle. How that God actually does the same thing in different portions of the scripture to teach us different lessons so we can learn it because we never get it the first time. And here is going to be a huge one around who Moses is for the children of Israel and who the children of Israel are are in relationship to God. I want to begin before we go into their reaction, address the issue of the shining face. Again, what we see in verse 29 is that Moses' the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. What is this all about? I would say the first thing we want to understand is that Moses requested this impact in his life. He requested this. Because back in chapter 33, the struggle that Moses had was with God killing off thousands of the Hebrew people. And Moses was insecure as to how the rest of this journey was going to go. And Moses, rather than running from God or being offended with God or somehow engaging in a self-righteous enmity towards God, because, you know, that's how we are when God does what God does. Sometimes we don't like it. And then we want to argue about it or we want to leave God alone. You know, so many people on the planet who says, you know, I went to church, but there were some things about that Bible I didn't like. And off they go. Moses is dealing with probably the most severe kind of crisis you could, a divine judgment on the people that he's called to lead out. And he's struggling in his mind now as to what this means. Let me give you some insight into what it means when we said in Romans chapter 8, everything works together for good to them that what? Moses loved God. And that was the predication for Moses, always not running from God whenever trouble came, but running to God. See, he had run when he left Egypt in a sinful condition from Pharaoh. You and I know what it means to run from God. In our unsaved state, that's what we do. That's what Adam and Eve did. When they rebelled against God, what did they do? They ran and hid. That's what you do when you don't know God in his saving and pardoning grace. We run from God. 
Moses, however, from the day that Bush started talking to him, ran to God every time he got in trouble. And here Moses is doing the same thing here. And so I call your attention to what is this shining face all about? Point number one, the presence of his glory advocated. The presence of his glory advocated. Remember Exodus 33, 13 through 15. Capture this with me. Because this is going to be the mechanism by which you deal with your life when you get into your struggles. It's going to help you now if you want to be helped. Right. So notice what Moses does, because Moses is really struggling with the judgment. Here's what he says in verse 13. Now, therefore, I pray you, O God, if you have if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your ways. Remember, that was the appeal. Now, notice how God responds to him. It's going to be important. He says, I need to know your way and that I might know who you are personally in order that I might find grace in your sight and consider that this people is your people. What a what a great petition on the part of Moses. He's trying to figure out who God is, how he acts, why he does what he does so that he doesn't walk in cross purposes with God. Does that make sense? When a person becomes your friend. It doesn't mean that you know everything about them. It does, however, mean that you are committed to finding out who they really are so that you can figure out their ways in order for your ways and their ways to harmonize. When someone is a friend, they are available, they are accommodating, and they are affirming. And what Moses wants to do is affirm God's ways because Moses is stuck in a predicament. Do you know what that is? He's the mediator of a bunch of people that by and large don't know God. We've learned that, have we not? From the beginning of their being called out, they're constantly missing God's message. And Moses is saying, Lord, you got to help me know you because if I'm going to be the one to share with the people who you are and what you're up to, I got to know you. And there can't be a Christian in this room that thinks that they're going to successfully represent Christ in the world and you not get to know him. There's not going to be a Christian in this room that's going to be able to be used by God in terms of the presence, in terms of the glory, in terms of the shining and in terms of the power who is not committed to drawing near to God that God might draw near to them. There's not a Christian in this room that's going to be able to shine for God's glory unless you draw near to him. And he promises to draw near to you. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? I'm going to drill down deeper into this. I want you to get it. Notice what it says in verse 14. Notice what it says. We are in narrative form. And here's what God said. Here's what God said. Since Moses asked, Lord, I, I need to know your ways. I need to know you. I need to know how you behave so I can be sure that I'm on the right path with you. God says, my presence will go with you. Do you see that? My presence will go with you. If you don't have the heebie-jeebies in Bible study, that means thinking things through. That is the term pane in the Hebrew, and it means the face of God. The face of God. Write it down because there's a word play that we already know in this chapter that we have to deal with or else you come up with contradictions. Here's what God says. Moses, my presence shall go with you. My presence shall go with you. And in this context, we are dealing with a anthropomorphical metaphor about God being like a human being. Are we not? Now, I want you to capture it now. I want you to capture it. 
He's not only saying his presence in the generic sense of his physical body, but Moses, my face is going to go with you. That part of me or that part of a human being that you and I engage in at the highest levels of intimacy in order that we might know them. I don't know you because I see your feet. I don't know you because I see your hands. I don't know you if I am constantly fixed on your torso or your physical anatomy below your head. Isn't our world trapped by that kind of shallow assertion that we can know someone with their physical bodies? Of course not. Until I know your face, until I know your expression, until I know your conversation, because your head, your face has a mouth on it. It has eyes on it. It has ears. That is the vehicle on your body by which we get to know each other. I have to be able to see your smile or your frown. I have to be able to see your look away, your deflection, or your longing and drawing me near. This is how we get to know each other. And what God is telling Moses is very plain. Moses, you're going to know me all the way through this. I love this. He says, and when I allow my presence to go with you, I will give you what? Yeah, this is so powerful. What a blessing for God to say to you and me, if you and I fit Moses' description, that God will never hide his face from us. That he will never allow his presence to be so obscured and so deflected and so barred from us that we can't have the assurance that he will be with us no matter what we go through. And hear not the echoes of what our Lord says, lo, I am with you always to the end of the world. This is what he says to his people. And so Moses is advocating for the presence of God. I love this. This is so absolutely clear. And again, here's the faux pas of the language uh, that we're dealing with. Look at verse 15. Verse 15 says in Exodus 33, and he said unto him, if your presence does not go with me, we done. All we got is 10 encampments. I don't know where I'm going, but what I'm not doing is going forward without you. This shows us the heart of a man who has been called by God's grace. What he's saying is, God, if we die in the wilderness, it's okay as long as you are with me. See, Moses now is stuck to God like the old saying says, like white on rice. That makes some sense, doesn't it? In other words, Moses has locked in something that really should be a model for the children of Israel and every mediating call. If you and I are called to mediation, and as Moses was, you got to have a commitment to the one who's called you to that mediation. See, you, you, you can't be a waffling mediator like our government is and like a lot of our systems are where they go back and forth between the people and authority. When you are mediating authority, you are mediating for the highest authority because you believe it is best for you. So when in the ministry of the word or the ministry of the church, we become compromisers of biblical truth. Now we are subjected to the fickleness of the people rather than the faithfulness of God. And what Moses is demonstrating by his behavior is that he's committed to learning about God so long as God stays with him. The presence of God. Listen to it again over in verse 11. This is what God said over in verse 11, uh, 33, Exodus 33, 11. This is the same word for presence. And the Lord spake unto Moses, what? That's our term, presence. Presence to presence. 
only in the anthropomorphical sense, God doesn't have his back to Moses. You know how we get in arguments with each other and we turn our backs. If God turns his back metaphorically on you, you are in trouble. Because we do have that language in scripture. That he turns his back and gives people up to it. God only turns his back on you if you turn your back on him. It's important for you to know that, okay? It's important for you to know if you're forward with God, he'll be forward with you. If you're perverse with God, he'll show you what perverseness is. God doesn't play games. That's very important for you to know that. So the Lord spake unto Moses face to face as a man speaks to his what? So you and I can clearly define the relationship between Moses and God, as I stated earlier, a real friendship. Friends are available. Friends are accommodating and friends are affirming. Now, friends don't just let you do whatever you want to do. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Open rebuke is better than secret love. A friend sees you going the wrong way, he's going to face you, she's going to face you, and in love, help you turn back and get on the right path. And I'm trying to help you understand something about the shining here. The presence of his glory advocated under two things. Subpoint A, it's affirmed of God in Christ. Now, what do we mean by that? God talked about his presence back in chapter 23. Verses 20 through 23, and I want to read it. Some of you who know your Bibles well and you know this book is a what kind of book? It's a hymn book. We know the presence of God is summed up in the person of Jesus, whether the Old Testament or the New. Do we not know that? Do we not know that Jesus is the revelation of the invisible God? Do we not know that he is the visible Yahweh? If you've seen the Father, you've seen the Son. If you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. Do we not know that? God is invisible in his ontological qualities. He can only be seen in his Son. Wherever he shows up in the world, in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord was his presence. Listen to what he said. Behold, I'm going to send an angel before thee. That's called a forerunner doctrine. Who is the forerunner of the people of God? You know your Bibles. Hebrews chapter four tells you, right? Jesus is our forerunner who has entered into the veil for us to secure our destiny to glory. I'm going to talk about Joseph in a moment. Joseph was a forerunner for the children of Israel to lead them into Egypt in safety, was he not? The forerunner doctrine means somebody goes ahead of us and carves out the path to secure us in the destiny that God had established in his divine matrix. Jesus is our surety for glory if we trust him. Here's the motto of it. I want you to see it. I love this. He says, I'm going to send my angel before you in order to do what? Keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared for you. How important is this forerunner? You won't get there if he doesn't go before you. You won't get there if he doesn't keep you. You won't get there if he doesn't bring you into the blessed promise of what God has called for you. You and I are absolutely dependent upon the faithfulness of Christ to get us from here to glory. Am I making some sense? The angel of the Lord is very clearly our Lord Jesus. And notice what the text says in verse 21. Exodus 23, 21. Beware of him. Do you see that? Beware of him. That means obey his voice. 
That's why I love the New Testament. You and I can easily interface old and new because the New Testament, as I told you last week, is 80% of the Old Testament fulfilled. You can't read the New Testament and not know the Old Testament. And you're not going to have a full comprehension of the old without the new. The New Testament is pointing back to the Old Testament constantly saying fulfilled in Jesus. So then when the when Jehovah says, obey the voice of the angel that I send before you, whose voice are we to obey? The Lord Jesus. This is why in his baptism, he made it plain. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we're about to go there. Hear ye him. That's the message of God from the beginning. Listen to Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one's coming to the Father but by him. Them fighting words in my generation today, even among the religious, they don't like that narrow set of parameters. I told you God's love is conditioned upon faith in Christ. Outside of Christ, you'll never make it to glory. Listen to it now. Beware of him, obey his voice, and do not provoke him. For he will not pardon your transgression. Woo! Woo! Do you see it? And listen to the last line. Here it is. For my name is in him. All of God's attributes, all of God's qualities, all of God's characteristics are revealed to us in the person of Jesus. He's the revelation of the invisible God. Y'all got that? Name is not merely the nomenclature of a proper term that designates who you are as I am Jesse, but it also represents the qualitative characteristics that constitute me as uniquely different from somebody else. So you may, may know my name, but if you don't know my character, you still don't know me. There's another level to name as well, and it's called authority. In the name of Jesus Christ, believe on the Lord and you shall be saved. It is an authoritative proclamation. So Jesus is an authority. Jesus is also a revelation of the invisible God. And his name is the name that is above every name that by the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the what? Glory of God the Father. That's a bold claim, isn't it? Particularly in the world in which I live, because everybody's talking about a way to God. And Jesus just says, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, but by the name of Jesus. We're getting, we're getting offended right about now, are we not? See, because it's dangerous to preach the exclusivity of the Lord Jesus Christ in this world today. It's dangerous unless you love God. See, because when you love God, God actually trains you to enjoy being near the fire. See, so Moses early on learned how to dwell near the fire because at the fire, when the fire is your friend, you can be warm by the fire. When the fire is your friend, you can be covered by the fire. The fire will protect you while burning up everything that's in opposition to you. There's a lot of benefits with hanging out with the fire. And I'm here to tell you, when you hang out with the true and the living God, you're hanging out with fire. When you hang out with the Lord Jesus, you're hanging out with fire. When you hang out with the Holy Ghost, you're hanging out with fire and you need it for light and you need it for purity and you need it for protection. That's a relationship with the true and the living God. It's critical. This is what he said. He says, if you disobey him, if you provoke him, he will not pardon your transgressions. You see, we preach this Jesus 
that just will always forgive you every time for anything that you do. You guys see that? Don't you hear it every year? He'll forgive you for everything. Well, really, is that what your Bible says? See, those are tensions, aren't they? They're tensions. Those are called traps. The unforgivable sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven in this life nor in the life to come. So if there's one sin that is not forgiven, all sins are not de facto forgivable sins. There are some sins, please hear me now, that God must keep you from. Somebody going to say, thank you, Lord. There are some sins that God must keep you from or you're going to hell. See, it's not about merely you obeying God, but God keeping you. He will guide you and keep you so that you come to the promised land. I've I've taught this for many years. No true child of God can ever blaspheme the Holy Ghost. Did you hear what I just said? See, God makes it easy for you, child of God. Please listen to me. He makes it easy. You want to secure yourself for eternity? Just make sure you're in Christ. That's a simple litmus test. Is that a simple litmus test? Man, I don't quite know. I don't know if I'm going to make it. Are you in Christ? If you're in Christ, you will make it. Well, how can I know I'm in Christ? Make your calling and election sure. Don't play games with Jesus. Because according to what the Father says, if you provoke him, if you disobey him, he will not pardon your sins. Oh, that's a difficult one, isn't it? Got to work through it. Got to work through it. I tell people this all the time, and I'm going to lay this down to you again. Don't try to turn love into some hyper permissive stretch to an unrecognizable extent so that all love is permitting you to do whatever you want to do. That is not love. And that's what my world is doing in this postmodern generation of hating God for God putting conditions down by which you and I can have an everlasting relationship with him. That's why I tell you love is always a law. It's a law unto itself. Love does not like evil. It does not love evil. It does not love rebellion. Love is not engaging in all of the frivolities that go on in this life. Love hates those things that are not like God. Are y'all hearing me? That's why you need that love poured into your heart by the Holy Ghost every day. You need it poured in. I need it poured in. I need the love of God poured in me so that that other stuff can come out. Fill me up and push it out. Right. Right. Now listen to what he's saying, because I haven't, haven't done anything but tried to ar- argue for the shining of Moses' face is predicated on a request that him and God never separate. I got to drill down into it, so you, have to, you and I have to see it. So under the first sub-point, it's affirmed of God in Christ. Christ is the one who reveals those characters and attributes and reputation. You saw this in chapter 34, verse 5. Look at chapter 34, verse 5 and 7. I want to reiterate a beautiful event that we preached last week, and I just want you to capture it before we go on. Because you guys do know that what's going on in this narrative is that the children of Israel told Moses, look, we don't want to listen to God. You, you, you go find out what God is like and what he's up to, and then come down and tell us, and then we'll do what you say. Did y'all get what I just stated? So I want you to catch the framework. 
the children of Israel don't have no interest in what Moses is doing. Moses is running up on God. These people don't want that. They want Moses to do it. So with those kind of conditions, which God is going to acquiesce to, there are things that Moses gets to see that they don't. And this is what I told you about leadership. Godly biblical leadership must press into God to see things that the common people don't see. What's the point in having leadership if they don't have an episcopate? An episcopate is the Greek term for bishop, and it has to do with being able to oversee. That means God has to put the leaders in a position where they can see the whole landscape of where the sheep are. So they can see the enemy and tell the sheep to watch out. The enemy's over there. The enemy's over there. Or to find those green pastures where the sheep feed in. You need leaders to do that for you. Therefore, they must matriculate up into the presence of God. And that's what Moses is doing. And Moses gets a chance to see something. Remember, I told you the Lord descended in the cloud, did he not? And I told you every time there is a geographical movement on God's part, that is another anthropomorphic insight to the second person coming down from glory. Jesus is the only one coming down. Is he not? Jesus is the one that came down for us. And the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there. Stood with who? Moses, it's very important for you to get this picture. It's a narrative paradigm. So Moses has a friend in Jesus, does he not? Jesus is standing right next to Moses. What a friend. What a friend. Jesus comes down and stands right to Moses. Moses. Now Moses is trying to secure this relationship thing. And what God said is, I'm going to hide you in the cleft, and then I'm going to let my glory pass by you, and I'm going to let you know who I am. Jesus now is going to preach to Moses the character of God, is he not? Moses has a front row seat on the preaching of the gospel by the person of the Lord Jesus and the impeccable qualities of God are going to be made known to Moses. Here it is. You saw it. He descended, he stood, and he preached. That's what that word in the Greek, in the Hebrew means to proclaim. Jesus is the real preacher in the house, is he not? He comes down, he stands and proclaims. Church is dead, church is aimless if Jesus is not the ultimate preacher. Listen to it again. Look at the next verse, verse six. Here it is. And the Lord did what? So now didn't God say that's what he was going to do? When he says, I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock and I'm going to pass by you. So we've got these tensions here because on the one hand, Jesus is standing with Moses. On the other hand, he's doing what? Passing by. And as he passes by, he proclaims. There it is. The Lord, that's Yahweh. The Lord God, that's Yahweh Elohim. Merciful has said and gracious, merciful, long suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. You know what Jesus just did with Moses? He explained a prominent characteristic of God that Moses can depend upon. He said to Moses, Moses, you can always know this about the father. The father is Lord God. The father is merciful. The father is gracious. The father is long suffering. He's abundant. I'm going to get into that word in a little bit. In goodness and truth. Do y'all believe that? That's the God I know. That's the God I know. Now, when Jesus is your pastor, you can take him at his word. 
You might not be able to believe me, but if Jesus is your pastor, you can make good on what Jesus is saying. And Moses needs that. Now, if you take those first set of attributes, now you understand Romans chapter 8, 28 very well now. All things work together for good. If God is good and he allows things to happen, they are for your good because God is good. Am I making some sense? So now what Moses is going to be able to do, Moses is going to be able to frame the events that occur in his life in a way where he doesn't have to blame God, get mad at God, get upset with God. So if you have an axiom that it doesn't matter what the crazy is going on in your world, somehow God is up to good. You're going to be all right with God. Somehow God is up to good. Somehow God is up to good. So it's so important for you to get this. Now watch. So he gave us the first set of attributes and these attributes are consisting of God's mercy. But he is going to tell us God will tear your tail up. Now let me introduce you to the true and the living God. This is the God that most people don't preach. Here it is. Verse seven. Now he keeps mercy for thousands. Do you see that? It didn't say billions. So this is what we call a critical analysis of the, of the text by the ellipses. It's the things that are not there that you have to also regard. Now, God knows because he knew this planet was going to be filled with 8 billion people. So make this very plain. Not everybody's going to heaven. And God already knew it from the beginning. Now that God saves thousands and those thousands upon thousands upon thousands become millions. That's a beautiful thing. But God always has had a little flock. He has never saved everybody in the world and will not because they don't want to be saved. So that God would save one person is a mercy of God. Lord, let that be me. Let me be the one you save. But you're not going to you're not going to misrepresent God as his PR man telling everybody that God's going to save everybody. That makes you God's enemy. And I tell you. You don't want to be an enemy of God. Here we go. Notice keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions. Doesn't he forgive and sins? But he will by no means clear the what? See it? See it? Isn't that the tension? This is why when Moses tried to run in and say, Lord, kill me and not the people. God says, you better get out the way. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I'll punish whom I will punish. Did y'all get that? These are the two sides of God's character that the world does not tolerate. He's a God of justice and a God of mercy. And when God is being just and giving us over to our wickedness because of our rebellion and us suffering the consequences of our iniquities, we want to act like God's not behind that. In many cases, we want to be agnostic, if not atheistic. No one wants to say, if there be evil in the city. Hath not the Lord done this? If a lion roars, if the trumpet be blown, hasn't it warned you that a judgment is coming? And if the judgment comes, is not God in control of it? I wouldn't want a God that couldn't control humanity. I would consider this hell. I wouldn't want a God who would just let us do whatever we want to do. I would consider that utter foolishness. Am I making some sense? Don't misrepresent God's love or his justice. God's always good in either one that he does. 
This is what Moses is learning because this, this sermon is for Moses. It's not for the children of Israel. Hear me now, they weren't there. That was a private presentation and proclamation to Moses alone because leadership has to know when God brings the rod, you can't stop it. And that's what we learned with Paul, did we not? Shall I come in mercy or shall I come with the rod? And this is what we see in the apocalypse with Jesus. He comes with a rod of iron, smashing the nations because of their rebellion against him. That's the God we serve. You you ought to be happy about that. You ought to be happy about a God who shows extensive mercy, but he will tie your tail up. Doesn't that sound like a father? That's that old school daddy. That's that old school daddy. See, we don't have those kind of daddies no more. See, when you got a daddy like that that loves you, you know he will get you if you get out of line. But woe unto your enemies. Your daddy will get in their tail. That's the God I serve. That's the God of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. That's the God I serve. That's the God Moses served. God now can be comfortable with, with uh, Moses now can be comfortable with God's leadership. Are you with me? See, once you know your daddy and you know he has love, but he also has justice. You just want to stay on, stay on the right side of that mercy. And when he goes to do justice, just say whatever my God does, whatever daddy does is good. Point number, point number one, let's finish with our second subpoint because this is really important under point number one. Jesus is the revelation of the invisible God. You will never see the Father apart from Christ. Secondly, Moses asking God to advocate for his glory. We're seeing it in the proclamation here in the text, but it's confirmed in a law covenant in Moses. This is what I want you to see now. The narrative is important. This beautiful portion of scripture you're looking at in chapter 34, verse five through seven, was predicated upon Moses' obedience. Here's what God told Moses. He says, Moses, now I want you to come up to me. I'm going to show you my glory. But you got to do something first. Chapter 34, verse 1. This is important theologically because Paul is going to explain to us what this is about. We're going to 2 Corinthians 3 in a moment. Remember, the New Testament explains and fulfills it. It gives clarity on what those Old Testament principles were designed. Chapter 34, verse 1. Capture this now. And the Lord said unto Moses, do what? Hew thee two tables of stone like the first. What was he saying? Moses, when you come to me, I need some new tablets. I need some new tablets because I'm going to write my laws on those tablets a second time. In other words, I love this. The first time he went up, God wrote on those tablets, the Ten Commandments or Ten Words, as I told you. And then he told Moses, boy, you better get down. I'm about to kill all those people. You better get down there and let them know they're in danger. And you saw how Moses representing God broke the tables crushed them up, put them in the water and made the children of Israel to drink them because they had already violated the tables. They had violated the law. And what Moses is teaching us is what James teaches us. If you break one commandment, you've broken them all. And so Israel is in a predicament. Y'all with me? Watch this. What if Moses, what if God didn't give the children of Israel a second chance? But he does. He says, Moses, now when you come back up to me, when you come back up, bring a a couple of clean slates because we're going to do this again. 
Y'all got that? Getting ready to teach you something. Need you to get it. Need you to get it. So the text is laying it out in verse one. He says, and I will write upon these tables the words that were in the first table. I love this. Which you broke, Moses. Now, I love this because God has a relationship with Moses and, and, and God's checking Moses and Moses is checking God. And it goes back and forth. Lord, these are your people. God said, no, they're your people. Those are your people. And both are true. Both are true. This is what the mediator has to know. He has to know he represents God for the people, but he also represents the people for God. Both are true. Can y'all hold to that? Then I want you to see it further because it's important. Look at verse four and five. The text tells us this is the emphasis. This is right before Jesus comes down. So he hewed two tables of stone like unto the first. And Moses rose up early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded. Now listen to the narrative emphasis. It's important. You got to pay attention to God's word. Listen to what it says. And he took in his hand the what? Does not the Holy Ghost want you and I to know that Moses is coming with the tables to God? Because Moses represents the law. John 1, 17. Moses gave you the law. Grace and truth come through Jesus. So Moses is tied to the tables because the tables are going to be the covenant that Israel has to abide under. Am I making sense? This is really amazing because here Moses is tied to those covenants. But guess who Moses gets to enjoy? Jesus, the one who comes down, the one we know has to obey those stones, has to obey those rules if you and I are going to enjoy the blessing. That's a lesson for you and I. We're getting ready to learn that here in a moment. Look at verse 5. Look at verse 5. And the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there. Now, who did he stand with? We already learned it. What does Moses have while he's standing there? I'm getting ready to teach you that you and I must understand the law and the prophets over against Jesus as God's total revelation. Total revelation to humanity, because we live in a generation where folk like to say, well, I want Jesus, but I don't want Moses. You got to have all of it. You don't get to have Jesus without Moses. I'm getting ready to teach you that in our churches today, because they have abandoned the true meaning and significance of grace. They have also abandoned the necessity of the law. And yet Jesus is standing with Moses. They are not fighting. They are friendly adversaries. Watch this now. So you got to get it because there's a there's a what's going on now is Moses is already having the glory of God shining on him. Y'all got that? It's already happening. We haven't seen it flushed out because he hasn't come down off the mount. But is not Moses in the midst of the glory? Are not the two tables of stone then also being permeated by the presence of God's glory? This is what Paul is about to teach us on that end. So it's important for you and I to see that when he asked for his presence to show up, it was affirmed in Christ and it was confirmed as a law covenant in Moses. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 27 through 30. We're almost done with point number one. Listen to what God said through Moses to the children of Israel before they walked into the wilderness. Here's what he says. Now you go near. This is what the people said to to Moses about God. Now you go near and hear all that the Lord our God shall say. Y'all got that? 
Now, I've already told you, I'm going to drill it home again. They had the right to hear from God for themselves. Mark it down. Because God came with no preconditions that said the children of Israel couldn't hear from him. In fact, they did hear from him. In the Exodus account on chapter 20, remember, he spoke out of the fire at the top of the mountain. It was the people that says we can't stand this because the ground was trembling and there was smoke and thunder and all that stuff was just wrecking their physiology, their neurology, their whole whole being was saying we can't handle the thunder of God. Moses, you go talk to God, come back and tell us and and we'll do whatever God says. Y'all got that? Sound like a cool set of uh, concessions. But in reality, what I want you to know is that the people of Israel constantly told God, we don't want you. I want to keep going because I want you to see it. Here it is. Go thou near and hear what the Lord our God shall say. And speak thou unto us that the Lord our God shall speak to thee. And we will do what? We'll hear it. Faith comes by what? And then we will what? Do it. This is called the obedience of faith. Now notice what they just did. They made a conditional covenant with God. Stay with me. I'm I'm getting ready to go somewhere if you can keep up. Now, God didn't ask them to do that. They did that themselves. That's what religious folk do all the time when they get in trouble. God, I promise if you let me go, I'll stop. I'll stop. I'll quit. I won't ever do it again. I'll go to church every day. I'll read my Bible. I'll pray. (laughs) Come on now. It's true, isn't it? I promise, oh God, I'm going to stop smoking that weed. I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop drinking. I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop, God. I promise, God, I'm going to stop committing adultery. All that. Now, all of a sudden, they're going to try to keep God's law. And God never said that's the way you come to him. Listen to what goes on in verse 28. I love this. And the Lord heard the voice of your words. This is what Moses said when, when, when I talked to God on your behalf. When you spake unto me. And the Lord said unto me, "Ah, I've heard the voice of the words of this people, (laughs) which they have spoken unto you. They have well said that which they have spoken. Look at verse 29. Here it is. Oh, that there was such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always that it would be well with them and with their children forever. Deuteronomy chapter 30 lays it out. God said to Moses, when you die, as soon as you die, they're going back to Hori. See, so you can run off at the mouth in a moment of fright and fear and tell God what you're going to do. But God already knows your heart. So I'm laying out something for you because we're about to go to the New Testament. And I'm going to show you how the New Testament teaches another way of relating to God apart from a conditional covenant paradigm that you make with God. Because I'm absolutely sure anytime you tell God what you're going to do for God, God knows you won't do it. Point number two, the shining of his glory. Point number two, the shining of his glory. Let's talk about something absolutely beautiful. I'm going to try not to stay long on this point, though it is profoundly reflexive and deeply contemplative. Exodus 34, 29. We're in still chapter 34. Where Moses has come with the law commandments, has he not? He's come with the law commandments. So the the law commandments are there. And the text tells us in chapter 34, God wrote on those commandments. He literally did. Go back to verse 25. Let me see if I can walk up. 
Look at Exodus 34. Yes, verse 27. Here it is. Are you there? And the Lord said unto Moses, write thou these words, for after the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with who? You, Moses, and then what? With Israel. He's saying, take the Ten Commandments, write down what I wrote, what I have told you prior. So if you were reading uh, Exodus 34, verse 10, all the way up to verse 27, God reiterated the Ten Commandments under two principles. No idolatry, no worshiping any other gods. And I am the one you are to celebrate in all the feasts of your days. So Moses wrote the Ten Commandments down again and God affirmed it here in this verse. Listen, and the Lord said to Moses, write these words after the what? Tenor, tone, character of the words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. Notice he emphasizes Moses. This is why the Old Testament is called the covenant of who? Moses. This is why Jesus said Moses gave you the law. Because Moses is the mediator. Moses is God's man and Moses is the people's man. Moses is in a predicament. But God's going to keep Moses. Look at the next verse. Verse 28. And he was there with the Lord for how many days? Yes. Long time in the presence of the fire. Long time in the presence of the glory. Long time in the presence of the shining. So long was he there that when he came down, the glory of God was on him. What a lesson about intimacy and devotion and fellowship and nearness and communion with God. See, what I'm about to teach you is that every one of us as children of God, we have that same shining. Every one of us has that shining. It's not possible to know Jesus and not yourself be a light of the world. Every one of us has that same flame, that same fire, that same presence. Is not Christ in us? Does he not sit on the throne of our heart? Didn't Jesus say you the light of the world? Didn't he teach us to never put it under a bushel? Oh, that's the problem. So every believer has the same shining. It's just whether or not you will let that light shine. See what I'm saying? And whether or not you have the kind of relationship with him that you draw near to him, that he may draw near to you, that your mouth may open up in accurate teaching and proclamation of who he is. Because a big part of our shining is what we say. Am I telling the truth? Right. You want to hide that bushel under a bed, that, that light under a bushel or under a bed? Keep your mouth shut when it's time to tell people about Jesus. Now we got a problem, don't we? Now we have a problem with the relationship, don't we? Now listen to what it says. He was there 40 days, 40 nights. Neither did he eat, drink any water. And he wrote upon the tables the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. There it is. That's a summation of what Moses did finally at the end of his time with God, at the end of his time with Jesus coming down, at the end of his time with Jesus revealing the character of the Father in terms of justice and mercy. Moses had a wonderful worship service for those 40 days, did he not? There was another man who spent 40 days with, Jesus, with God in the wilderness. What is his name? Jesus. And when he came up out of the wilderness, he had something to say to everybody, didn't he? 
Time to continue with this because I want you to capture this. Notice what our point says, the shining of his glory. And I'm already asserting to you that this concept of the glory of God relative to shining is yours and mine. But I just need you to comprehend three sub points. The impact of Moses's participation. Do you see that sub point A? The impact of Moses' participation. It's seen in verse 28. I want to expand it with Ecclesiastes. But look at verse 28. I'm sorry, verse 29. And it came to pass when Moses came down from the Mount Sinai with the two tables. There it is again. He's making sure you and I know that Moses has the what? The law. Moses is not lawless. The commandments are a revelation of God's righteous attributes and characteristics and his demand of us. Y'all keeping up with me? There's no way that you and I should concede to an interpretation of scripture by which we say, well, I'm just living by grace. I'm not, I'm not, not living by any of God's laws. That's a misinterpretation, is it not? So we're going to drill down into that because we love harmony. We love coherence. We love the priority of a proper interpretation of scripture. Because if we set ourselves up for a con- contradiction of God's word, the Charlie hearts is between our ears, not God's. When people contradict God's word, it's not because God's word is contradictory. It's because we are not harmonizing the truth claims. Now, it's important for you to get. Very important. So Moses comes down and his face shone while he did what? While he did what? While he did what? See how important fellowship with God is? While he talked with God. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verse 1. Listen to what Solomon says. I want you to capture this. Because the application to me, you and me is this. Here it is. My proposition is as a child of God, we have that same shining. My admonition is you and I need to maintain communion with God. The promise of that is if you maintain communion with God out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth will speak. That is not possible for you and God to spend long periods of time together and people not know it. It's not possible. That's not possible. Listen to it. Who is as the wise man? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? What is Solomon teaching you and I? That wisdom comes from labor in God's word. Who's a wise man and who knows the interpretation of a thing? See, wise men and women have spent time with God, spent time with God's word. They understand providence. They understand events. They understand uh, the, the claims of God in terms of boundaries and principles and right and wrong. They understand prophecy. See, when you're a wise person, you know what God is up to. But what's going to make you wise if you don't know what God is up to? Am I making some sense? All right, so I'm challenging you Christians because it's not possible for you and I to spend lengthy periods of time with God and not know what he's up to. The Lord does nothing but show it to his servants first. The world should be able to ask you, what is God up to in all this crazy mess that's going on? Oh, 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 beats me. I know you're not spending time with God because it's not possible for you to know that God works everything together for the good of his people and his counsel is in everything that's going on and you not be able to say, this is what God is up to. This is what God is doing. This is why this is happening. See what I'm getting at? 
Right. And in the midst of trouble, I've got, I got another application around the shiny that I want to make sure you get. In the midst of trouble in our society, when trouble comes, children of God, that's when God wants your light to shine. Your face shines in trouble. There are two areas I want you to get. There are two areas our face shines if we're a child of God. When we are in trouble. When we are going through trouble, God is precious to people. And therefore, he reveals his glory to people by his people. Am I making some sense? Troubles are often the permission of God to allow wickedness to abound like it's doing today. And doesn't God always show up in the midst of evil to manifest his glory? I'll give you one example before I go on. It's Stephen. Stephen was the first New Testament martyr of the church. And do you guys remember when he was surrounded by the Sanhedrin? Those bulls of Bashan, those lions, those dogs that wanted to do to him what they did to Jesus. And remember what the text said in Acts 6 verse 15? His face was shining like an angel. And they were like, whoa. And that's because the spirit of glory was resting upon Stephen. What does that mean? When God allows trouble in your life and you've walked in fellowship with God, he allows you to be a mechanism or a means to help people understand what's going on. When that's happening, your face is shining. Why? Because you've walked with the wise and the wise has given you an interpretation of what's going on. And now you get to tell men and women what the wise is up to. The only wise God. It's important for you and I to get that. Listen to what he says. Going back to uh, Ecclesiastes 8.1. Who is the wise man and who knows the interpretation of, th- of a thing? A man's what? A man's what? A man's what? Now the wisdom of God is Christ. And the wisdom of the people of God is Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.30 tells me Christ is our wisdom. Y'all listening to me. So listen to me, child of God, when you're running off at the mouth with Bible verses that are detached from their central objective and principle. And that is summed up and revealed in the person of Christ. When you're not teaching the the word of God according to the gospel, it's because there's no light in you. There are all kind of people quoting all kind of Bible verses, trying to attach scripture to all kind of stuff. And they got y'all dragged out there on red moons and blue moons and and green moons and, 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 and economic fallouts and the Lord doing this over here and the Lord doing that over here. And they never show you how Christ is Lord over it all. So so this is people, according to Paul and Second Timothy three, ever learning and never, ever coming to the knowledge of the truth. These are people that wander about kind of uh, wanting their ear itch, itched or scratched because it's itching with all kinds of bizarre prophecy to make you feel like you're learning something. And it never, ever sums up in the person, the work of Christ. Watch this. And it never comes to pass. I told our folks this a couple weeks ago. A lot of y'all listened to that crazy fella called Khan. Yeah, K-A-H-N. Khan, or K-H-A-N. He's a Jewish cat giving prophecies. Y'all know what I'm talking about. This is for those, those of you who, who run around on YouTube getting your Bible studies. Right, and, and Khan, Khan has been conning the people since Obama. Khan has been conning the people since Obama. He writes books, him and... Uh, Haggy, 
Haggai does the same thing. I, I don't even remember their names, and that's why I don't remember. I don't pay no attention to them. Other than to know they write books about prophecy, and it never comes to pass. They make thousands of dollars on these crazy, wild, bizarre misinterpretations of Scripture. And that's because they don't know Jesus. Jesus is the revelation. Jesus is the wisdom. Jesus is the righteousness, redemption, and sanctification of God. You got to really know Jesus to know your Bible. Jesus is the key to Scripture. Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it's written of me to do thy will, O God. Right? Jesus makes it plain. If you had known Moses, you would have known me. Because Moses, what? Wrote of me. So when you hear preachers or preacherettes, and they're not preaching the truth in Jesus, understand they're full of baloney. Baloney sandwiches. That's called Christian BS. Y'all know that. Who is as wise as the, who is as the wise man and who knows the interpretation of, of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his what? A man's wisdom makes his face to shine. That's why Moses' face shone. Because of the wisdom of Jesus that was present. That's why Stephen's face shone. Because of the wisdom of Jesus that was present. That's why Elijah and Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17, 2, Luke chapter 9, verse 13, their whole bodies were full of glory because they were with Jesus. Y'all remember that? Jesus is the revelation. He is the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are only complete in him. And if Jesus possesses that glory, you do too. Am I making sense? It's important for you to get that. So I'm tying New Testament. Oh, notice what he says. It makes his face to sh- shine. And the boldness of his face shall be what? Shame. I love that. The theologians argue about how that is to be understood. It's simply this. The strength of that man's face will continue from strength to strength to strength to strength. Okay, that's what we're about to deal with in 2 Corinthians 3. The boldness is the Hebrew term is strength there. So when a wise man is able to operate out of his calling or her out of their calling, their face is going to be well known, is it not? When they're walking with God, it's going to change in that. It's going to go from strength to strength to strength, even in their old age, even as they wind down, even as they wane to their last hours, they remain gloriously bold for God. That was Moses. As Moses died, the Bible says his strength remained in him because he was walking in that Shekinah glory. Does that make sense? All right, one more thing before we go on to our other point. Under point number two, we have the impact of Moses. Secondly, the excellency and dignity of what? Right, Psalm 80, verse 3, and then verse 7. Psalm 80, 3 and 7. Here's the, um, here's the prayer that the saints should always pray to God. Turn us again, oh God. Do you see it? And cause your what? Face to shine. Turn us again and cause your face to shine. And we shall be what? Is that a great promise or what? All right, so, so notice what it says. This one here is in a very economical verse. We're asking God to look upon us in his mercy, in his presence. And then not only look upon us, but to do what? Shine on us. Shine on us. We are saying that we have no life without God. We're saying that we walk in darkness if God doesn't look upon us. We're saying that we can't turn from our sins if God doesn't turn us. 
See, we actually believe in grace here. We actually believe that it's impossible for you to save yourself. That you can't turn yourself from evil. You need God to turn you. And then when he turns you, he's got the smile upon you. Because the smile is an anthropomorphic expression of God's favor and blessing. I'm going to say it again. I'll leave it alone for later because my time is running out. When we're asking God to smile on us, to cause his face to be to shine, we're saying, Lord, pour out the rays of your sunshine and the power of their benefit to regenerate us, to strengthen us, to renew us, to empower us, to cause, to emit from our being all of the fruit and all of the blessing for which you have made us yours. This is the idea of the sun coming down on the plant. It's the sun coming down on God's field. We need sunlight in order to grow. We need that light in order to flourish. We need that light in order to emit and express all that God has called us to do. If we only walk in darkness, we will never bear the fruit that God wants us to. Am I making some sense? This is extremely important. Turn, O God, and cause your face to shine on us, and we will be what? Verse 7, Psalm 80, verse 7. One more, one more. Notice what it says. Turn again, O God, and cause your face to shine, and we shall be what? Verse 19. Psalm 80, verse 19. There it is. We're ending that psalm, and notice what it says. Turn us again, O Lord God of hosts. Cause your face to shine upon us, and we shall be what? Three times in that psalm, they are requesting that God turn his face towards them. They mean business with God, do they not? Because they know they're in trouble. I said to you a little bit earlier these words. I said when God is causing, when God is allowing trouble in your life, when he's allowing difficulty in your world, that's when God wants his people to shine. Did y'all get that? That is because that whole promise in Matthew 5 is in the context of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is that era and time where, where the people of God were going through trouble. Blessed are they when they persecute you. When you walk with your enemy, if he make you go one mile, go twice. If he smites you on one cheek, give him the what? This is the ethic of men and women in the gospel in a crazy, wicked world. Because what is God going to do in the midst of trouble? Allow an opportunity for you to shine with a message and a method that's different than this crazy world. This crazy world will tell you to fight everything that is your adversary. And we are all by nature impulsive enough to want to get caught up in the party spirit. Am I making some sense? But history has proven it never works. You cannot outfight the government on a physical level. The way you're going to get him is the way the first century church got him. And that's through the ethic of the gospel going twain so that when they smash you, the light comes out and they see God's glory as it was with Stephen. They stoned him to death. And what did he say? Lord, forgive them. They know not what they do. So in the context of trouble, you and I want this shining face to emerge. There's another context. I want to give it to you by application because our time is winding now. It's in the context of need. You can write that down. In the context of need. In the context of needs. See, in our world, we got two things going on definitely guaranteed. Trouble and needs needs. And 
when you and I are God's people and Christ is in us and we're walking by faith, then you and I possess the fullness of God bodily and we have those resources to be able to meet needs. And in meeting those needs, we grant an opportunity to once again talk about him who is our wisdom, our redemption, our sanctification and our righteousness. Am I making sense? Two categories, trouble and what? Needs and what? Trouble and needs, trouble and needs, needs and trouble. This is quite amazing because I'm teaching you something that is counterintuitive. I'm teaching you something counterintuitive. Generally in trouble, we shrink away. That's what our government counted on three years ago. Make them shrink away, make them cower, make them comply. The whole thing was a compliance lesson. The whole thing was nothing but a compliance lesson. Because their job is to turn you into slaves. Our government wants to find out if we're real Christians or not. Oh, yeah, you're real Christian. Let's see. When Caesar says bow down and pinch the salt to the false god, let's see what you do. Are y'all hearing me? And so you saw all kind of Christians bow down. Y'all know I'm telling the truth. I love you. I'm just telling you the truth. And we never had an opportunity in the midst of that trouble to shine. Like Peter and James did. You're going to tell us we can't preach in Jerusalem. Are you kidding? Jesus rose from the dead for us to preach. Jesus went to glory for us to preach. Jesus sent down the Holy Ghost, the anointing itself for us to preach. We'd rather obey God than man. Boy, if their face wasn't shining, I don't know what was. They are in the belly of the beast telling the rulers Whatever you want to say, you can say, but we're going to keep preaching because we believe that God has commanded us so. There it is. There it is. Stay with me. Stay with me. Let's go on. Got a few more minutes. Stay with me. We're under point number one, the excellence and dignity of anointing. I am, I am priming you because the idea of the shining face comes out of Exodus 20, 20 and uh, Exodus 29, verse 20. You can start there. This was the ceremonial anointing of the high priest Aaron and his sons. When Aaron and his sons were called to be mediators in the temple, anytime they were to occupy their office, guess what they had to do? They had to be anointed with oil. The anointing with the oil is a symbol of the presence of what? The Holy Ghost. He's poured out on us in order that we might represent God in his presence and in his shining and in his power. Listen to it. I'm going to tap it to it one more time. Exodus 29, uh, 21. And you shall take of the blood that is upon the altar. This is the anointing of Aaron. And the anointing what? And sprinkle it upon who? And upon his garments and upon his sons and upon the garments of his sons with him. And he shall be hollowed and his garments and his sons and his sons garments with him. The pouring out of the oil has always been a type of anointing those who are called to ministry. Do you agree with that? Psalm 23 verse 5, the metaphor of the sheep and the shepherd David is a shepherd, but he's also a sheep and he's talking about his great shepherd, the Lord Jesus. And do y'all remember that? If you're a child of God, you should know this story. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall never need for anything. My God is able to make me lie down. He's able to lead me. He's able to guide me in green pastures. 
Yea, even though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, my God is with me. His rod and his staff, they will comfort me. And he prepares a table in the midst of my enemies. We love that at funerals and we love that whenever we're trying to be happy. But what David is talking about is when I'm going through hell and my enemies are trying to take me out. And I'm in the midst of difficulties beyond my capacity to deal with. God knows how to come along and say, David, be still. I'm going to set a table for you to eat. And David sits. And David eats. And guess what the language says? Look at it. This This is the language of what God does for you and me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. And my joy overflows. Do you see it? Yeah. Right. This is why the two, this is why Peter and James and John in Acts 5, when they were beaten by the rulers, could go back to the people of God full of joy, Amen. thankful right. to have suffered for Christ. Right. There was an anointing on them. Yeah. Y'all keeping up with me? Yeah. All right, let me deal with my last point before I take us to the New Testament briefly. You and I need to just simply know it by application. The outpouring of God's spirit, the outpouring of God's spirit, sub point C. It is an indication of blessing. Please understand that. Just I'll take you just to um, Numbers chapter 6, verse 23 and 24, because this is the benediction I grant us every Sunday after church. You guys hear me using this Old Testament phraseology? I'm going to show you how it works. Speak unto Aaron and unto his sons. We just talked about them, right? They're the ones that are anointed. On this wise, you shall do what? Bless the children of Israel. Don't you want a blessing? And you shall say unto them in blessing these words. The Lord bless you. And the Lord keep you. Haven't we learned that? The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. Don't you need him to keep you? Now watch it. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. Now, some of you can admit that that's what God is doing right now, is he not? Is God not opening your heart wide to the revelation of his glory? Aren't you seeing God in a fuller sense in this context of worship than you did before you came in here? Is God not blessing you right now? Of course he is. Because that's what he does in the midst of his people. He shows us his glory. That's what worship is about, the opening of the heart and the mind to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When we leave worship, we're shining on the inside unless you're dead in trespasses and sins. This is why I love, this is why they said, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Come, let us worship our God. Let us bow down together to him. He's the God of our pastor. We are the sheep of his fold. Right. People don't understand how excited we get about coming to worship God because he shows up. He shows up. He shows up. And he will especially show up when you come hurting because he gave you grace to overcome the inclination to shrink away from him. All right. Second Corinthians chapter three. Let me show you something else. I'm cutting it short for something. Paul gave us an interpretation of this that constitutes three or four things I want to deal with. I'm going to start at verse um, verse nine. Second Corinthians three. Now I'm going to walk through it and let you go for today. Here's what Paul said about Moses and the shining face. 
He says, for the ministration of condemnation, if the ministration of condemnation be glory, and he's talking about the law of Moses. It's a ministry of condemnation because Israel was condemned by it. If it be glorious, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. Now, if you don't know your Bible, he's making a contradistinction between the old covenant and the new covenant. He's saying that the law of Moses was glorious. We agree with him. The glory of God is seen all through the Old Testament, is it not? God's fire was in the wilderness when Moses met him. God's fire was with Israel when they came out of Egypt. God's fire was with Israel in the tabernacle. The fire of God led them all the way to the promised land. God's law is glorious, is it not? All right, I got you now because I heard you. It's on, on tape. I was telling one of my brothers earlier that God made you and I in his image and in his likeness. And there are manifestations that we are exhibiting, expressions that constitutes the character of God in us and in us alone. We have the ability through technology to record what we're doing. God's been doing that. We have the ability to record what we're saying and what we're doing ubiquitously everywhere on the planet. Do we not? God's been doing that. The only reason we're doing it because we're created in his image. And God has actually hired us to do that in order to prove that he's right and we're wrong. I love this because as much as we're using technology to represent his omnipresence, his omniscience and his omnipotence, man in his rebellion is setting himself up by his own tools to be condemned by the God who gave him the ability to do it. That's why I'm saying on the day of judgment, we just get to roll back. What's today's date? What's today's date? July, uh, July 9th, 2023 at um, 10 minutes to one, the congregation said, yes, we understand that the law of Moses is glorious. All right, Lord, here we go. It's very dangerous to be under expository, sound, exegetical teaching because you won't be able to tell God you didn't know. So let me go ahead on and tell you now so I can wrap this up. What makes God's law glorious? It's a covenant. It's an old covenant. We as believers are not under that old covenant, but we certainly respect God's law. It's foolish as I don't know what to tell men and women that we don't have to obey the Ten Commandments when they proceed from the very nature of God for our good. Let me see if I can walk through that for a minute and then show you the excellency of him who makes it possible for us to continue with God. If we're not under the law, that means we don't have to worship one true and living God. Because the law says you shall have no other gods beside me. If, if we're not under the law, then we can continue creating all of these vain images and icons and, and all of these gory and perverse uh, spectacles that we're doing both in still shots and in film causing you and I to be corrupted in our souls because of their perversion. And when God says, don't make any image of any likeness or anything in the earth, above the earth, or in the heavens, that, are, that is to be bowed down or to be worshipped. You guys know that. Now, if, if God's law doesn't matter, then you and I can take the name of the Lord in vain, like all kind of people do every day, including Christians. God tells us to love our father and our mother that our days might be long upon the earth. That's an utter violation today. Children are ruling and the parents are slaves. Our world is in a state of chaos. 
follow me now. The law of God says you shall not commit adultery. It's happening everywhere and in the church. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, his house, his goods, his ox, his ass, or anything that's your neighbor's. Our society is riddled with covetousness. All of God's fundamental commandments are being violated today, are they not? And we are worse for it, aren't we? We need that moral code as a framework as to how to measure ourselves and how to understand God's fundamental will. Am I making some sense? Because God's law proceeds from his nature and God's nature is love. And love never works ill to its neighbor. If you ever meet a professing Christian that says he does not love God's law, tell him he's a liar and the truth is not in him. And you are a walking contradiction. Everything in our society is falling apart because of a lawless government. And I told you this before, the Antichrist is the lawless one. That's our term, okay? Anomos in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 and 11. The lawless one is coming and he's going to violate all of God's laws. You and I are living in a society of lawlessness. And the Bible would tell you and I that we are to protect the vulnerable. And look at what's happening to our children. They're mutilating them. They're medicating them. They're destroying the children. And God said he would do that. When you and I forsake God, he'll forsake us. And when we're under the curse, we'll hate the very vulnerable among us. And then we will arrogate to ourselves. We're free to do that because we're not under law. Christians should never talk like that. Am I making sense? You shall not kill. And yet we're killing thousands of babies in the womb every day. This is why we know America is under the judgment of God. And when our churches are silent on all of these infractions, it means the church is dead in terms of a prophetic voice. Am I making sense? There ain't nowhere in the world that you and I should not be the, con- the society of the concern. We should be concerned about all this evil going on. We should be concerned about it. We should be concerned about it. And many of us are called to do something about it. And everywhere we go, we see darkness. We should be ready to tell that darkness, Christ is the light of the world. Am I making some sense? But see, when that light is not in you, you cannot do it. Listen to what Paul says, verse 10. I'm going to walk it through. Verse 10, I should just leave it alone. For even that which was made glorious, the law, had no glory in this by, by reason of the glory that excels. There's an excellent glory that precedes the law. And that is the glory that's found in Jesus. Listen to what he says in verse 11. Here it is. Verse 11. For that which is done away was glorious. How much more that which remains is glorious. What is he talking about being done away? The old covenant. Not the law, the old covenant. Can y'all understand the distinction between the covenant as a framework for the law, but the law itself is not done away? Because the covenant is a set of agreements, stipulations, and contracts that you are brought under with God as to how to function. But once that covenant is done away, the law now has to take on another dimensional influence in your life. And remember what Jesus said, or rather Paul, the law now is no longer on two tables of stone. The Holy Ghost writes the law on our hearts and on our minds. That is Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10 and 11, right? A new covenant that I make with them, not like the old covenant. I will take out the stony heart. 
I will put in a heart of flesh and I will begin to write my laws on their heart. And my, Stay with me now, child of God. This is the anointing. This is what the spirit of God does by his word in your heart when you learn how to say yes to Jesus. What you become by relationship with Christ is a spiritual person who walks in a moral and ethical framework of obedience to God that makes you different than the world. When you are a true believer in Christ, you are spiritual because God has opened your eyes to the glory of God in Christ. But you are also moral because the law is spiritual. That's Romans 7, 14. The law is spiritual because it's designated to the heart. Am I making sense? And and the law is summed up in two fundamental principles for those of you that are getting lost because I want to stop. The law is summed up in two fundamental branches. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. That law is summed up in a person. His name is what? His name is what? Jesus. Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. That's Romans 10 verse 4. And what we're dealing with in the account that Moses has, has gone through in the text where the people shrunk back from him. Paul is explaining that to us. Look at, go back, please. Look at what it says over in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. Notice what it says. I'll close here. Notice what it says. I'm going through verse uh, 18 here. Seeing that we have such hope, we use great plainness of what? Now he's talking about the simple, open proclamation of the gospel over against the veiling of Moses' face. Moses put a veil on his face, did he not? Because the people said, no. The only way Moses could talk to them was with that veil on his face. Didn't y'all learn that? Now, when Moses went and hung out with God, guess what he did? He took the veil off. But when he went to the people, he had to do what? Put the veil on. And it wasn't because of Moses. Because Moses had initially called them to come. And they shrunk away. And then he called them back. But if you look at the text carefully, he only called them back when he put a veil on. Go back and read it for yourself. Why would they come back if they shrunk away when they saw the glory on him? And then he calls them and they say, "Okay, we'll come anyway. No, they only came because he veiled his glory because he veiled the glory. He veiled the glory to show that the children of Israel didn't want God. They wanted Moses. The text is teaching us they were walking in enmity to the glory. God help my people. I'm looking at one minute to go. Are y'all hearing me? This is what Paul is about to teach. This is what he's about to teach. This is so absolutely apropos. This is where you must examine yourself when it comes to the word of God. Because you can come to church, but you may not be coming to Christ. You got a lot of professing Christians call themselves Christians and don't enjoy God's word. How are you going to enjoy God if you don't enjoy his word? How are you going to know Christ? Remember what Moses says? Lord, I want to know you. The Bible says thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. 
Right. And we could go on and on about the beauty and necessity of the uh, testimonies of Scripture. Would you agree with that? I live in a generation of professing Christians who spend no time in the Bible because the Bible is a mirror. The Bible is a light. The Bible is a lamp. The Bible is a sword. The Bible is a hammer. The Bible is fire. I'm going to help you now as we get ready to close. You're fooling yourself if you think you're a Christian and you have no interest in reading your Bible. You're fooling yourself. You're fooling yourself. You got a veil over your heart too. Listen to what it says, verse 13. And not as Moses which put a veil over his face, and because the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is being abolished. We talked about that. What's, what was being abolished was the old covenant. The old covenant, that first covenant, does not continue to today, even though the Jews believe that. They're under a delusion that the first covenant is the only covenant. And they never saw that first covenant fading as Moses died. That's what the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 8.13. So Moses never let them see him fading. And therefore, they're constantly, even to this day, trusting in the law covenant to save them. Am I making sense? And whenever you hear a very ignorant, naive, just imbecile Christian talking about keeping Torah, please understand they have never heard the gospel. They have never heard the fact that by the works of the law, no flesh will ever be justified in the sight of God. They have never heard the law say, if you violate one law, you have violated every one of the commandments. They have never heard the law say, cursed is everyone that does not continue in absolutely everything that the commandment says. They've never heard it. Because if you heard those precepts, you would say, whoa, where can I go? Since now I know that the only way I can be right with God according to the law is to keep it all past, present and future. And since I haven't kept one, I violated them all. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? But if Israel had been able to tolerate the fading glory of the old covenant, they would know Romans 10 verse 4. Christ is the end. Christ is the fulfillment. Christ is the completion. Christ is the totality. Christ is the covenant. Christ is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And he kept all of God's law. So that sinners, not looking to law, but to Christ, receives the benefits of the law as if they obeyed them all from the beginning of time to the end of eternity, never ever having violated one of God's precepts. See, God not only cleans your slate when you come to Christ, he actually takes all of the obedience of Christ and imputes it to you so that in God's eyes... You are perfectly righteous in Jesus. Am I making some sense? Right. 
And when you have that kind of relationship with God, you don't need a veil. Look at verse 16. Look at verse 16. You don't need a veil when you know that Christ has paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin has left the crimson stain. I'm master. Washed it white as snow. Now I can come into his presence. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, what is it talking about? The veil being turned away. The veil shall be taken away when the heart turns to the Lord. Now, there's a lot of technical terminology in here. I'm not going to get into. I'll save it for our class because we are in first and second Corinthians right now. And I want to drill down into it because it's beautiful. What the Apostle Paul says is God has to turn your heart. And isn't that what they were praying for in Psalm 80? Turn us again, O God. Turn us again and we shall be saved. That means God will remove the veil. The veil is actually a veil of rebellion and disobedience against God. It's a veil of enmity and hostility. Romans 8, 6 says the carnal mind is enmity against God. That's the veil. So when you see men and women who have an aversion to God's law and certainly an aversion to Christ, it's because there's a veil over their heart. It's a veil of rebellion. It's a veil of fear. It's a veil of enmity. It's a veil of sinfulness. Did y'all get that? I don't have time to unpack it, but it's so clear. It's a veil that says we don't want God in his glory. And we are willing to work for our own salvation if we do believe that there's a God. That's the world you live in, child of God. Would you agree with that? All right, so I'm going to close it down here. I want you to get it. You're trapped. You've been trapped by the gospel. You've been trapped by the gospel. Do not judge your God by feeble means, but trust him for his grace. Behind the frown of his providence, there shines a smiling face. Do not condemn your God and do not trust in feeble means. A man is not saved by a multitude of horses or by a government or by policies. A man, a woman, a nation is only saved by the true and living God and the work that Christ accomplished. And you and I should not fall apart when evil providences come into our life. And we shouldn't certainly make those things say to you and I, God has left us. Judge not the Lord by feeble means, but trust him for his grace. Behind every trouble you go through, if you're a child of God, there is a what? Smiling face. Because God knows he's using that trouble to clean you up, to change your mind, to set you down, to make you right, to bring you to Christ, to shut you up to grace. And force you to say to God, as, we had to, as the apostles had to say to Jesus, where shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. You alone have the words of eternal life. Am I making some sense? 
Jesus and Jesus alone. Amen.